electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Here to John and Julia, thank you very much, and welcome everybody to that Halftime Report. The market's marching higher, as Deirdre said, big tech, a big part of the show. We're at new record highs, posting nice gains for the month, but I mean... What's new for this juggernaut of a market? The question now is really just how much left is in the tank for stocks? Could a correction actually come this fall? I mean, we haven't had one in about 18 months. We will debate and discuss all of this with your investment committee on this Monday. Brenda Vangelo, Surat Seti, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova, and John Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Look at that. Great lineup. All right. Get to them in just a minute. But first, to your Monday money. Because with two days left in August, concern about the dog days of summer, apparently all bark and no bite. Stocks, for the most part, they keep surging. They're not up a lot, but every time we go up, it's a new record. The S&P 500, NASDAQ, NASDAQ 100, all at another all-time high. And we have got a packed show to get through in the next hour. Look at that. S&P up six-tenths of 1%. More on the markets and your money in moments. But we have to begin this hour in the Delta and the remains of now tropical storm Ida, leaving a trail of destruction in its wake and more than a million without power. Shepard Smith is here now with the very latest in this hour. Shep. Hey, we now know that this storm is about 40 miles southwest of Jackson, Mississippi, 40 mile an hour maximum sustained winds and moving generally speaking to the north will eventually make its way to the northeast and it could be a Wednesday, Thursday, a rain event here in the northeast. I want to take you right down south and some new pictures that have come out from the Coast Guard flying over. Well, these are pictures from Grand Isle. We have an update on There were eight firefighters who stayed behind in Grand Isle, and until recently, nobody had had contact with them. We've just gotten word, though, from Joe Valenti, who's the director of emergency management in the local parish there. They've made contact with those eight firefighters. They are safe on the third floor of a... of a concrete building, still 30 people who rode the storm out on devastated Grand Isle, unaccounted for at least at the moment. That could be a communication problem. Hope to know more later. Uh, moving on now, uh, some new information in Coast Guard pictures that have come in from Galiante, uh, an overview, helicopter pictures that just show widespread destruction in this area. These are some, some stills from me. I, sh- I said Galeante. It's from Galeano, Louisiana. Uh, those pictures from the Coast Guard. In addition, we've done our own calculations on the power outage areas. The Entergy Power Company has shown specifics of the area where the power is out. And though it's about 1.18 million customers, our own calculations at CNBC shows that's an area where roughly 2.5 million people live. Power, a serious concern. And, And listen to this. There are eight major transmission lines that supply power to the city of New Orleans. They began failing yesterday afternoon, and now all of them are out. 
which means, according to the local power authority, the city of New Orleans will be without power for at least days. And one commissioner there is suggesting it could be much longer than that, depending on how badly those power lines are damaged. We know one major transmission line collapsed into the Mississippi River, has disrupted river traffic along the Mississippi, as well as obviously halting land traffic in that area. We know the port of New Orleans, though, is reopened, and the energy companies that have shut down around Port Fouchon uh, are now still assessing the damage to their different uh, areas of refinery and otherwise, and they expect to have some, some assessment later in the day of exactly when all of that energy production could be back online and workers could get back to work. So that's the latest F we, as we have it. Uh, there's still search and rescue operations, especially in and around Lafitte, Louisiana, high water rescues, uh, hundreds of boats, 43 helicopters out there. The search is on. Updates as we get them. Back to you. Shepard Smith. Shepard, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Looking at it at the top of every hour. All right, so Shepard hit it a little bit. Let's talk more about the energy impact. All right, Louisiana accounts for about 18% of total U.S. oil and gas refining. And right now, most, if not all of it, is currently shut down. All right, companies with refineries or other operations in Louisiana are, there's your map, Marathon. That's MPC, not MRO, by the way. There's two marathons. They've got the state's biggest refinery, ExxonMobil, a huge Baton Rouge plant, by the way, moments ago coming out and saying they see no structural damage, should be up and running soon. Valero, they've got two in the New Orleans area. You've also got a Shell facility, PBS, and Phillips 66. Now, in the Lake Charles area, it really is all about Sitco's massive refinery with a couple of smaller ones from Phillips 66 and Transworld Oil surrounding it as well. The Sitco refinery, one of the biggest in the United States. All right, that is on the refining side. Like we said, most, if not all of that, currently is shut down or running at extremely reduced rates. So we're also watching gasoline prices in coming days, particularly because the Colonial Pipeline, you know that now is the key pipeline for getting refined products like gas and jet fuel from Houston and Louisiana to North Carolina, those lines are temporarily shut down. We don't know for how long, temporarily their word. The pipeline is running from its North Carolina hub to New Jersey. But if inventories in North Carolina are drawn down, that could change wholesale gasoline prices. They are rising a little bit, not a lot, a little bit on that news. Also, Louisiana, important for liquefied natural gas exports as well as oil imports through its Loop offshore facility. Chenier Energy, LNG is the ticker, has a huge LNG export terminal on the western side of the state. And Tellurian, ticker Tell, is building one. So watch for reports of any damage there. The stock's not moving, so the market believes things are going to be okay. And the last company you need to watch is the one, as Shep just noted, that is the most important for millions of families. That is Entergy. They are the power provider for all of New Orleans and much of the surrounding area. And right now, there is no power. Also, you may not know this, no state relies on electric power more than Louisiana. As far as a mix of propane, natural gas, whatever, they're almost entirely electric grid. They also power the water pumps. A scary situation right now with some reports that power could be off in specific areas for a few weeks. The key here is not that much of the energy infrastructure is offline. It's happened a lot in recent years. The question always is, how long does it stay offline? That is the most important thing for prices and companies going forward. All right, we'll get more on that, but right now, more on the macro and talk more about the 
overall market, because even with all that going on, the rally simply rolls on. But it is not a risk-less rally. Or maybe it is. Let's bring in Mike Santoli. He's looking at how much is maybe left in the tank, so to speak, for stocks. It's starting, Mike, to feel like a risk-free rally, but that's probably when you're supposed to get nervous. Yeah, I would say if you really, uh, you know, have that notion that uh, basically things have been uh, taken off the table in the way of hazards. Yeah, sure. Let's start to worry. But I don't necessarily think we're at that point now where people are very heedless about it. One reason for that is that only at the index level have investors really been kind of held harmless this year without a 5 percent decline. If you look within the market, it's refreshed itself with isolated corrections. But why are we even asking this question if uh, how much is left in the tank? It's because of the distance travel up 20 percent on the S&P 5 less than two-thirds of the way into this year. Obviously, the S&P has also doubled off the March 2020 lows. You want to dial it back, back further, 4,500 is three times the level where the market peaked both in 2000 2007. We've also been running at about a 16, 17 percent annualized S&P return over the last decade. So that's in the upper end of historical tendencies. What does this year look a lot like? 2017, 2013, where you had these kind of miraculous rotations among sectors. People thought we should pull back more along the way. It really didn't. You had very good returns going in. Now, what happened after that? That wasn't the end of a bull market, but you did have a period where there was a lot more chop, a lot less generous returns in the subsequent year, year and a half. Obviously, you know, S&P earnings up 40, 50 percent this year doesn't happen every year, not going to happen again next year. So some of the tailwinds are probably going to abate. I always feel like it doesn't hurt to keep expectations grounded, even if the market gives you more than you think in the moment. Uh, maybe investors deserve, Brian. There is a lot there and a lot going on with this market. Let's bring it now around the horn. Michael Santoli, thank you very much. Joe Terranova, we have not had a 5 percent down move in the S&P 500 since all the way back, really, in September of last year, 10%, you got to go back to the spring and the dawn of COVID as well. What's your take? Should we expect a correction this fall? So that's a great place to begin, Brian. And it sounds like when you hear that statistic that we are certainly due for the 5% correction that you're talking about. But let's remind ourselves that that's not unique. It was back in 2016 and 2017 that the S&P did not have a 5% correction for double the amount we're experiencing now, 20 months. Currently, we're at 10 months. So I think what investors need to focus on is that you still have an incredibly friendly Fed that emphasized that private sector borrowing costs are not going to be rising in the form of interest rates. You also have profit margins that continue to expand. In 2019, profit margins were at a historic high at 10 and a quarter percent. Uh, today, after going down to seven and three quarters percent during the pandemic, Brian, they're all the way out to 11 and a quarter percent. So that is a very uh, strong environment for companies to continue to conduct their business and for risk assets to continue the appreciation. All right. Good stuff. I'll let you get that fax. Pick it up. Let us know who faxed in. Stephen Weiss, I would say that you are glass half empty, Weiss, <laughs> but I'm not sure there is a glass because you think it is maybe not inevitable, but but pretty close. Well, the only Sounds like Stephen had to get the facts. <laughs> no, he went to get the facts, Brian. Just the facts. The fact is, Stephen, we can't hear you yet. We're going to get you back on. Brenda Vangelo, I know you're there as well. I'll, do you think a correction is 
inevitable? I don't think it's necessarily inevitable, but it, you know, the market has been incredibly resilient more recently as we've seen, you know, companies that are, have very tough comparisons year over year and we have a, an increase in geopolitical concerns. So there are some reasons to be cautious and certainly some reasons that could, you know, bubble up and cause some kind of correction. But as Joe alluded to, you know, we, we have this incredibly strong fundamental backdrop right now, particularly with corporate earnings that really have just blown away expectations thus far. And so what gives us some comfort is the fact that even though the stock market, the S&P, is up significantly this year, it's still trailing the overall pace of revisions, uh, which is up more than that. And then if we look beyond the S&P 500 to areas like small cap equity and emerging markets, they absolutely have not participated as much and in, in some cases have experienced their own corrections already. So we still see opportunity. And I think we can't forget just how low interest rates are and are likely to continue to be here. Um, and not only does that pave the way for, um, you know, kind of status quo when it comes to corporate um, exposure to interest. But beyond that, it's, it just creates an opportunity where there isn't any other place to go other than the equity market to try to get a return that's going to exceed yeah. inflation. environment. I mean, that, that it does kind of come down, Brenda, that Tina trade. There is no alternative. You know, it's like, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters? Where are you going to go? Just the equity markets. We got Stephen Weiss back. Stephen, I think you heard my question. Why do you feel that a correction is close to inevitable? Well, because you always have, but I'll tell you what, uh, we've seen them. You take a look at the auto stocks, they've corrected, in some cases, 20%. You take a look at the materials, they've corrected 10 to 20%. You if you just roll through each sector, they've had these rolling corrections. Unless you told me, or unless I was convinced myself that we're getting a 5% correction tomorrow, and then I would hedge out with the S&P, I wouldn't do anything to my positions, I wouldn't care. They're interesting conversations to have. They can, make, they can get you thinking, but at the end of the day, what are you going to do with it? If the market's down 5 10%, what are you going to do? You're going to do nothing. Maybe you're going to raise some cash to go into names that get out of names that are fully priced and go into ones that were beaten up, but that's about it. These are part, it's part of market life. It's part of market cycles. So to spend all this time trying to figure out, hey, there's going to be a correction in November, September, October is really a useless effort because there's no response to your conclusions. So the markets go up 90% of the time. Maybe they'll be up, go back to the returns of 8% per annum instead of the 14 to 16%. But you know what? That's still okay. And there are very, very few times in history, as a matter of fact, only three since 1950, when you saw both the 10-year decline in value and the market trade down. So if you look for rates to go up, it's IAN, you're looking okay. for the 10-year to decline and rates to go up, you still want to be in equities. Well, it's a random but interesting stats there. Three times since 1950, you got my ear, Stephen, but follow up very quickly. I mean, then what happened? I mean, we know the markets are much higher than they were in 1950. Right. I get the long-term play, but you think there's any short-term risk there because of what that may be saying? Well, here's where the risk is. I believe that, that the FOMC declares in their September meeting they're going to start tapering. And if the market's not prepared for it, there'll be a knee-jerk reaction down, and that's when you want to put some more money in. I also believe, and I think the market's becoming uh, in, you know, convinced of it, that they're going to pull forward the tightening. 
Now, to me, the biggest risk is if this ridiculous $3.5 trillion bill passes, then the Fed's going to say, we've got a handoff right now to fiscal liquidity as opposed to our monetary policy, and they may accelerate then the rise, the increase in rates. But markets go up when rates go up. It just happens. Look over time. So I think you're okay. I'm not blind yeah. to it. I always keep some cash optimistically. <coughs> but, you know, if you're in the market, there's always going to be some risk. But it's going to be short term. That's true. Surat, I mean, you go back, I think it is to 1994. I'm not going back as deep as Stephen Weiss into the catalog. But I think it was 94. We got 2.5% in rate hikes. And the Dow, you know what it did? It rose 33% in the following 12 months. I think it's an excellent point. We're looking at rate hikes or tightening as a risk to the market. Just because rates go up doesn't mean that we're automatically going to go down. We've kind of been trained that way through the years. Low rates, good. Higher rates, bad. But first off, we could raise rates to 2%. That ain't high. I mean, you're absolutely right, Brian. Rates can go up and the market can go up, and that's going to be where in the market you want to be. And the reason that the rates are going to go up is because the economy is doing well. And we've, we've actually gotten through kind of the Delta variant. And if, if demand is still strong and we have, you know, a really good economy, rates will naturally start going up. The Fed will taper, and then the bond market itself will reprice the bonds. What will then happen is certain stock and certain sectors will do well. And that's that conversation that we've been having for the last six months as to, you know, do you want to be in value? Do you want to be in growth? Do you want to be in long duration assets? <laughs> that's where it really matters, where cash flow is going to be really important. And I think the discount rate for future cash flows will hurt some of the hyper growth mm-hmm. companies. But in the meantime, there, there are a ton of companies that whether you're in financials, you're in cyclicals, uh, you know, whether you're in transports, those are going to do well. So having this barbell strategy kind of going into the next couple of months is going to be really important. I mean, to Steve's point, look, if we get a really strong jobs report in, in, in Friday, good news could be bad news. But I think that could be a short term buying opportunity similar to kind of 1994 where you can see the market rise. But within that, you're going to have to be very specific into where, where you want to put your money. Yeah. I mean, Powell's beat us over the head with the idea that it's really more about employment now than inflation, or at least employment as a part of inflation. John Nigerian, looking at the options pits, options markets, anything that people are doing with the SPY, the S&P 500, that, that giving you and your crystal ball some indication of which way they are macro betting on this market? Yeah, Brian. In fact, there are. Just fresh from today, they're buying the uh, 463 calls in the SPY. Uh, they bought about 22,000 of those. Uh, so that's an upside bet from where we are right now. Um, I'd love to be as optimistic as Surratt as far as, you know, a positive jobs report Friday. I don't think it'll be that, Surratt, mainly because we don't roll off for the uh, uh, enhanced unemployment benefits until September 6th. So I don't think as many people will be going back to work in this time frame as I believe they will in the next one, Brian. Um, and that, of course, won't really impact uh, because we don't have an October meeting for the Fed. We've got September 22nd, then we've got November and December. So um, they, they could do a uh, meeting, of course, they could do an emergency move in between meetings, but there's nothing scheduled. So I think a soft jobs report this Friday is what we're gonna get. I think that's why some of the people are sniffing that out buying upside calls um, because they believe that keeps the Fed on the sidelines a little bit longer. 
And the Fed's clearly Brian. going to wait until after the extended benefits roll off in September. And then you got to give it a month or two to see that data coming through. To your point, John, it could be Christmas or early 2022 before we start to get jobs data that the Fed may actually start to pay attention to. All right, Joe, going back to the markets and what to do. There's this book called Buy High, Sell High, or Sell High, or whatever it is, tremendously written. <laughs> you, can, you don't have to buy low. You can buy high but sell higher. Is that kind of the way you see this? Just a grinding, what is it, 52 record highs for the S&P 500 this year? I, I do. I think Steve made an excellent point where the market continues to rotate. There are corrections, but when those corrections are occurring, the market is rotating. Capital is finding other places in the equity market. To get a sustained 5% decline in the index itself, you have to see capital flow in the entirety out of equities and find a home somewhere else. That's not the environment we're in now. And Brian, let's remember something. Just because we will be tapering, and I believe we will, it is not automatic that we'll be tightening thereafter. The two of those, they do not uh, need to have a simultaneous occurrence. Last time we tapered, which ended in October of 2014, we began tightening 13 months later. Well, Brian, did we ever really tighten? Because back in 2019, we were reversing the tightening and we were beginning to lower rates once again. So I think investors need to keep that possibility in mind that we might taper and growth might not actually be strong enough to really get into a tightening mode for rates. Yeah, I mean, this whole tightening fear has kind of been there in the entire time. And, and Surat, one thing we don't talk about enough are the small caps. Okay, the S&P 500, 52 or whatever record highs this year. That's great. The small caps were red hot a few months ago, then got ice cold. We're actually starting to see a little bit of bubbling in the Russell 2000, a little down today, I get it, but it had its best week last week in a couple of months. Are you a believer? Are you a buyer in the small caps as a whole or any specific stocks? I think the small caps are a great kind of foreshadowing as to where the economy is going to go. They pulled back when the Delta variant became really front and center. And I think as a leading indicator, when they start coming back up again, you're going to see that the market then believes that the reopening trade will, will be much better. So uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, I would dip into small caps at these levels, especially considering everything else has kind of run ahead of it. So uh, look at those for, for some indications, and I think they'll do well when the economy kind of goes back to normal. Brenda, would you agree with that? I would, and I think it's important, especially in a market environment like this, to maintain diversification. So don't put all your eggs in one S&P 500 basket. I think it's um, important to maintain some exposure to areas like small cap. International equity, same, uh, I feel the same way, but particularly with U.S. small caps, where we know the economy here is in pretty good shape and continuing to improve, um, I think it's it's an area where there is more opportunity now than we see within large cap, for sure. Any specific stocks, any specific parts of smaller cap, Brenda, that you guys would like there? We don't invest in individual stocks uh, within small cap, but rather we, we invest in ETFs and some actively managed funds where we have a great trust in the management teams there that are, are picking individual stocks. But we are maintaining um, some exposure to both growth and value uh, within small cap, similar to what we're doing on the large cap side. Uh, just given a lot of the oscillation that we've seen this year and, and last between growth and value, I think it makes sense to have a little bit of exposure to both. 
Yeah. Hey, Stephen, I want to throw out a data point from Jeffrey's at you because this is your world in the hedge fund community. It's a little bit of a weird data point. It may not mean anything if it doesn't say that. Sullivan, why are you mentioning it? Hedge funds became more conservative heading into the summer, taking down their net long positions to the lowest ever at 136 percent. Now, 136 percent sounds weird, but that's how they operate. Point is, hedge funds got more conservative, meaningful or meaningless. Well, it's meaningful if you look for a tea time out in the east end of the island because you can't get one. So my suspicion is they said, hey, we've done enough work in our portfolio this year. Let's go work at our golf game. Look, it's been a good year for a lot of people. And I think that right now with some of the cross currents they may see in terms of rates taken a little off the table, but they can turn around in a heartbeat, number one, number two. That's not the tail that's wagging the dog anymore. I mean, hedge fund, sure, they have tons of assets. Long short equity is a much smaller portion of the hedge fund community. It's really the macro bets that are in there. So I wouldn't draw anything from it because of their ability to just move quickly. And I also think, as I said, it's been sitting on some gains. Um, there have been some issues that some of the macro players have seen. Uh, they're befuddled, as am I, that where the 10-year is. So they were looking at China that had the ports closed, which caused them to pull back some equity exposure. Those have reopened now. So I think it's more of let's sit back and see where we are. You're coming in front of a seasonally weak period in September. Let's have yeah. some cash. Let's have, take down our exposure and see how we can redeploy it. Park on their equities like they parked their Range Rover at Baltus Roll, perhaps. All right, let's talk about the investment committee move. Stephen, we're on you. Let's just stay on you, right? Why not? Because uh, Moderna, best performing stock in the S&P 500 by double the next best. It's up like 282%. You are not betting against the vaccines, but it sounds like you're betting against Moderna. Yeah, uh, no, I'm not betting against Moderna. Moderna is my largest position, uh, and it has been. However, I'm short the 440 calls, and I'm short the 420 calls, because the premium in this stock just get ridiculously high. So what I'm doing is look at the scalp. Ah. Those, those calls expire this Friday. So I shorted them at much higher levels. So by uh, long I'm puts, short calls. Already. So by, I want to be clear. Long puts, short calls. Yep. You're not making a bet against Moderna. You're, you're riding out some of that premium. Exactly right. Exactly right. So... Um, Look, I'm long puts just because I'm, I take out some protection. When I find cheap protection, I take it on a lot of positions. Moderna has a lot of volatility. So John will tell you this is his world, and he's great in that world, which is that these are other trades. They're not investments. And when the premium goes crazy, you saw, or when it gets dirt cheap, you take protection. When it goes crazy, you take out the premium. Simple as that. Moderna, I'm still committed to. I still think the stock goes up multiples from here over time. It's a technology company. It's not a biotech company with the superior mRNA technology, period. All right. Interesting options move there. We'll get a lot more maybe on that with John later on. And Brenda, we'll get to your moves a bit later on in the show. Right now, shares of PayPal, they are rallying. Kate Rooney has big news on that stock coming up next. And a reminder, if you are out on the go, download the CNBC app today. Watch us, listen to us live anytime you want. Markets, new records, oil up again. The latest on Ida as well. A lot more to do. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. 
Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Floodwater is still trapping scores of residents in coastal Louisiana. Across the state, nearly half of all electricity customers are without power. That includes the entire city of New Orleans. Officials say it will take days to restore power. And this just in Exxon shutting its Baton Rouge refinery until stable electric power is available. The 520,000 barrel a day facility is one of the largest in the state. Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra has declared health emergencies in Louisiana and Mississippi. The move gives health providers more flexibility in responding to natural disasters. And more crews are heading to Louisiana to help with rescue and recovery efforts. Task forces from Massachusetts, New York and Connecticut are all on their way. And tonight, team coverage of Hurricane Ida getting help to survivors and reestablishing basic services that airs tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. And the European Union has taken the U.S. off of its safe travel list. It's recommending that countries restrict non-essential travel by Americans. The decision does not immediately limit travelers from the U.S. and individual countries make their own travel rules. You're now up to date. Brian, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. Well, we have got shares of PayPal. They are spiking higher. Some big news. Kate Rooney reporting the company is exploring potential for launching a stock trading platform. Wow, Kate Rooney. Joining us now, what are we talking about? Robin Hood, pal? What would this thing look like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Robin Hood shares are moving lower on this news that PayPal is getting into stock trading. The company is exploring the launch of a stock trading platform. This is according to sources familiar with those plans. I'm told the company has held talks with potential partners in the brokerage industry to roll this out. That partnership model could be similar to how it rolled out cryptocurrency trading, if you remember that earlier this year. We also have some details around a new hire as part of that move into stocks. I'm told the company brought on Rich Hagen. He's the former CEO and founder of Trade King, which was bought by Ally Invest. His job title now on LinkedIn is CEO at Invest at PayPal. That is a previously unreported unit of the company. PayPal pointed us to comments by CEO Dan Schulman back at Investor Day earlier this year. He talked about the long-term vision for the company and how PayPal could eventually include more financial services. That did include investment capabilities. He also talked about things like high-yield savings accounts 
and cash checking. Shulman has described PayPal as being a super app, as he called it. Stock trading would definitely fit into that longer-term vision for PayPal. Another source tells me that this will not roll out during this calendar year. It's more likely to happen next year at the earliest. And this comes, guys, amid competition in the fintech space, especially with stock trading. Brian, you mentioned Robinhood. You've also got Square, SoFi, and a lot more regulatory scrutiny lately. Uh, We've also got shares of PayPal. Take a look up as much as 3% on this news. They have been moving moving lower on that news. Back to you. Um, Yeah, looking at the market cap here on my computer. Sorry for looking down. The market cap of PayPal is $335 billion, Surat. Market cap of eBay is $50 billion. I'm old enough to remember when PayPal was just like a little tucked in thing inside of eBay. I mean, they let that thing go and it has made people a lot of money. You own it. Would you buy more here? It is a it is a core holding and I've been adding to it when I have new accounts or new new clients. I think it's one of these stocks and, and they just demonstrated today the total addressable market for their business is huge. I mean, look at what they have with Venmo. That is just a jewel that has really been undiscovered in terms of how they're going to make money with it. You add to this the potential of stock trading. They're really going after a market where they're going to get their younger customers interested, be more captive with the assets. And if you add trading, you add Venmo, you eventually get you know high-yield savings, the money will stay there. And, and the leverage that they can get, especially uh, with, with, the, with the cash on their balance sheet, is huge. So I think... This is a company that that is forward thinking. Uh, It is definitely a core holding in the fintech space. It's not cheap. It's never been cheap. Uh, But I think, you know, great management team, great products, and I would hold this. Truly remarkable. Stephen Weiss, the other side of that story, as Kate mentioned, is Robinhood. That stock is down a little bit today. Would PayPal and whatever this new marketplace is be a threat to Robinhood? Yep, and uh, I bought puts actually on uh, on on Robinhood, um, expiring September 10th. And and look, they've got a big lockup that's coming. You know, those people are going to look to head to the door as soon as they can. But as much as the story is that you've democratized investing for everybody, which I think is crap, is already democratized. You've also democratized the ability of companies to enter into the space with technology. So PayPal has to be a winner because it's been around for a long time and they could form these partnerships limiting their risk like Robinhood can't, for example, because of so much news floating around from the 60 plus uh, civil class action suits to Gensler with their pay for order flow. You know, he may put the kibosh on that any day. So, look, to me, Robinhood is is past its sell by date. It's not profitable. Their cost of attracting clients just went up exponentially as soon as PayPal comes on. You've got SoFi, which I think is a better managed company. So it's a very competitive space. I just don't like Robinhood. I hope you get that impression, Brian. We got that impression. I mean, by the way, we got Liz Young of SoFi on on halftime tomorrow as well. And and who cares if you make money? The founders are now worth $135 trillion each, whatever. That's really what matters here. John, uh, Jerry, by the way, I dare PayPal to name this Little John as their new trading opportunity. That's a Robin Hood comment. John, what do you make on, what do you make on this news? I wonder what the future of, say, the, the Schwabs or the E-Trades, or, you know, which is now inside Morgan Stanley, what's their future? Yeah, and uh, I think you're right on there, Brian. Uh, yeah, Robin Hood is down. There's 
pretty decent put activity in that one. A lot of it probably Stephen Weiss. Uh, but I think the, the, the issue here is that they're not just going after Robinhood. They're going after everybody in the industry. And the more you make this easy to trade on an app, which Robinhood did, uh, PayPal will definitely go that route. My brother Pete and I are going that route with Market Rebellion. And I think you'll just see more and more of that, Brian. Um, and they're going after those legacy brokers because a lot of them can't do on an app as easily what Robinhood was able to do. Um, yeah. And what PayPal will be able to do will be very interesting as well. It's just like electric cars, like a Rivian, because you, you're going up against companies like GM that have huge ensconced balance sheets. They've got cash flow issues. They've got all these a- legacy assets versus starting new, starting fresh, starting light. PayPal may be able to do that. All right, good stuff there. Big news there from Kate Rooney on PayPal. All right, still ahead. The big ETFs to watch right now. John's latest trades in unusual activity and maybe the latest hurdle for airlines. Something is happening in airlines which has some people in the market a little concerned. We'll tell you what that is coming up. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. As the market continues to hit new highs, there's been growing interest in how to stay in the market, but at the same time provide some kind of downside protection without getting too complicated. Not surprisingly, ETFs are popping up to provide those kinds of solutions. Let's talk with Paul Kim. He's the CEO of Simplify ETFs, whose firm specializes in alternative strategy and option-based ETFs. Dave Nodick, my old friend, CIO and director of research of ETF Trends, joins us as well. Paul, you recently unveiled two ETFs to hedge on interest rates and volatility. Tell us about your largest product. This is the Equity Plus Downside Convexity ETF. That's a real mouthful, but it provides a put option overlay with owning the S&P. Tell us about it. Thanks, Bob. Um, SPD, which is the ticker for that product and our largest product, is essentially an SP500 exposure with an overlay of options. And so what is this ETF doing? It's providing access to direct hedges inside of an ETF, which makes it very easy to get desired U.S. large cap exposure uh, with risk mitigation built in. Why is that a big problem? Well, everyone's seeing all of the metrics around extreme market valuations, and we know a lot of the sort of froth in this market at some point will come down at some point. We don't know when. And so in that context of trying to time a market, is it better to sort of find an alternative that provides insurance built into the strategy and avoids having to time when to go to cash, when to become defensive, or have to rely on bonds. Yeah, you know, Dave, these products make sense for people who want to buy some upside protection and downside production as well. But 
we're in an up market. There doesn't seem to be a lot of demand for these products right now. Is what's it going to take to suddenly make this a really hot sector? These these kinds of hedge fund like strategies. Well, it's kind of become a hot sector. We've had about five billion flow into products like this over the last six seven months. The reason for that is because people are worried about market valuations. I don't think we need a big downturn for people to think about hedging. But obviously, until things come down, these products don't look like they're working. Yeah. Right now, we'll see. Of course, remember, we're going to downside market, and then you'll see them really pop here. Yep. Thanks, guys. Much more on how ETFs are providing new products to hedge against stock risk, interest rate risk, volatility risk, all kinds of risk. Coming up with Paul and Dave on ETF Edge at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time, etfedge.cnbc.com. Halftime, back right after this. Airline stocks moving lower today, and there are some new concerns about flying demand heading into the fall. Let's get that now with Phil LeBeau with more. Phil. Brian, typically this would be one of the busier weeks of the year leading up to Labor Day. But yesterday, just 1.9 million people flew. And we are clearly seeing the plateau in demand. Take a look at what we've seen in terms of airport pa- or airplane passenger levels here in the United States. It was down 21% in July, down 22 almost 23% for the month of August. So we're clearly seeing things slow down. And that has the airlines cutting their capacity plans for the fall. In September, look at United, American, and Delta, all cutting their capacity between 7.9 and 11%. And then you look at Southwest, it's cutting its capacity by almost 7% in the month of September. And remember last week, they talked about further cuts separate from this because of operational issues. Finally, I want to take a look at JetBlue. And why are we showing you JetBlue? Because there is an expectation, according to reports out of Europe, that the EU plans to cut non-essential travel, basically ban non-essential travel from the United States due to the surge in COVID-19 cases. Bottom line is this, Brian, the next couple of months, we will see demand fall back because as COVID-19 has surged, we've seen an increase in cancellations and a slowdown in bookings over at least the next couple of months. Brian, back to you. All right, Phil, thank you very much. Talk about it from a stock perspective. Surratt, I know you own Delta. I know you own United. I get the international part of the story, but Anybody out there that's booked a flight knows they are not cheap. I do wonder if the airlines, while maybe not taking as many people around the world, clearly, I wonder if they're making it up. I mean, coach tickets are like 600 bucks between Newark and Chicago. I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of ticket prices. But the thing is, the stocks have reflected some of this already. Delta's already down 25% uh, in the last six months. And I think going forward, what they're doing is they're just managing uh, kind of the planes coming forward. They can't get enough staff yet. So all this is actually in their favor, but I don't think the stocks do anything until we get some type of kind of forward looking as to the, when the variant's going to slow down. Having said that, I'm not going to, I'm going to buy more for clients who don't have it because I do think a company like Delta has a very strong balance sheet. And when things do improve, the stock will reflect it. It's already reflected uh, a variant in there. So I think it might be dead money for a while, but I can't time it. So I, w- I would buy it for clients who don't own it. I will say this, more people went through a TSA checkpoint than the same day two years ago, although one was a Sunday, one was a Thursday. Yesterday was incredibly busy, but Phil's point, it looks like bookings are slowing down. All right, up next, John's latest trades and unusual activity. We are at markets at new record highs. We're back right after this. All right, time now for unusual activity. John Ajarian. What are you seeing that's unusual? Well, 
two big mega caps. In fact, two of the biggest stocks in the world, really. Uh, Facebook, they're buying the weekly options that expire this Friday, Brian. 380 strike with the stock at about 375. They bought a lot of those, uh, some 21,000 contracts. That's a big bet that we go higher by Friday. That's helping drive markets here today, Brian. I am in those calls. Second one, Apple. And this actually plays into two other stocks, GlobalSat or GSAT and Iridium. Why? Because of low Earth orbit satellites. The new iPhone 13, there's a rumor out there that this will connect to those satellites. And if indeed it does, you won't need 4G or 5G to make phone calls and or to message. Now, no confirmation of that yet, but it's driving those satellite companies much higher, Brian. And Apple trading through 151 right here. I'm in that one. Those are the October 180 calls, and I'll probably be in those, Brian, for about a month. Okay, those are some big names. You weren't kidding about the big Mets, about like a $6 trillion in market cap. All right, up next, Brenda's new buy, plus your final trades. Halftime Report is back in two. All right, let's get some more on our investment committee moves. Brenda, we're going to start with you. You sold out of one stock and you bought into another. Who are they? We did. We sold out of FIS, which is a position we'd held uh, since 2019. We weren't happy with the pace that the company was paying down the debt uh, related to the world pay acquisition. And then there was talk of more acquisitions. So we weren't comfortable with that strategy. But we did see opportunity in Coinbase, uh, which, you know, like it or not, the crypto market is enormous. It's $2 trillion, surpassed $2 trillion earlier this year. Uh, Coinbase really is the market leader here uh, with a secure platform that's really highly trusted. There aren't a lot of other players in this market. They have 60 million users. Yeah. We think yeah. that's growing, uh, particularly with the institutional crowd, which we think is going to be you know, the next leg of growth here as the market continues to move higher. Okay. And, and why don't we start with our final trades? And Brenda, since we're on you, let's kick it off with you, your final trade. Final time is Amazon. Um, so old standard, but really it's done almost nothing for a year. Still think there's a lot of value here. And they made a deal with a firm, by the way, and a firm's of 43% today. Today, Joe Terranova. Brian, I'll give you a small cap. Fact set, ticker symbol FDS. Financial information never been more valuable. Was on it today. Surat. CVS. Uh, people are going to go to the store to get tested. Front of the store is going to do well. Stock is cheap. Yep. John. Gap Stores, Brian. GPS. Gap Stores bought it during the show. Thank you. And Stephen Weiss. Skyworks inextricably linked to Apple. As the Apple announcement comes out, Skyworks is going to continue to move higher. All right, everybody, great show. Thank you. I will see you tomorrow on the Halftime Report as well. That does it for us. The Exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.